Good morning. My name is Mark Myfair, and I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek. And we've been studying um, the Christmas account, and it's all under this title, Missing Christmas. And uh, I joked last night as we had our third Saturday night service that had lots of snow around it, Missing Christmas wasn't supposed to be about the weather and missing church. It, it was really about people who missed the first Christmas back in Bethlehem and people who miss Christmas today. And by missing Christmas, what we're talking about is missing Christ, the point of Christmas, the one whose birthday we celebrate each Christmas. The Bible tells us that some, from the very first Christmas, people have been missing Christ. John says in his opening chapter of his gospel account of John, of Jesus, he says people didn't recognize him for who he was, and people didn't receive him. They didn't believe in him. And so two weeks ago, we looked at busy Bethlehem. They were busy paying taxes, and they were busy traveling, and they missed Christmas. The amazing thing is there are actually more animals around Jesus' birth than there were people. And it's possible in the busyness of this month, as we're celebrating Christmas, that we too miss Christ. Last week, we learned that when we're puffed up with pride, like Herod, the king, it's very difficult to bow down and worship Christ. Proud Herod missed Christmas. And today we're going to look at a, another group of people that miss Christmas. And before we get there, let me ask you a question. Do you consider yourself a religious person? Are you religious? And on what basis would you answer that question? Well, what's the criteria for you to be called a religious person? And if someone called you a religious person during the week sometime, would you like that? Would that be a compliment? How do you feel about it? Look up the word religious in the dictionary, you find phrases like this, having or showing belief in and reverence for God or a deity of pertaining to or concerned with religion. Makes you think, well, what's the definition of religion? A personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, or practices. Synonyms like pious, reverent, devout, godly. That's the stuff of a religious person, according to the dictionary. I think in our day, especially in the church, it's easy to think about religious and religion and go, ah, don't, I don't like that. I've said it many times. Christianity isn't about a religion, a list of do's and don'ts that you need to do. It's about a relationship that we have with God through Christ. Then I was reminded this week again in my study that religion isn't a bad word for God. For in his word, we read this, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our fathers accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there is an acceptable religion 
in God's eyes. But a quick look at many of the religious people around that first Christmas, we understand that there is a religion and there's a religiosity that God will not tolerate. It is not acceptable. Have you ever met an intolerable religious person? I have. A few years back, I took a group of high school students down to Quito, Ecuador. We had this great missions trip. 20 students were there for 17 days. We were painting buildings and we were sharing the good news through mime and puppets and song and hooked up with a, an evangelist there. And we, we were sharing to 17 different kinds of venues from remote jungle villages to the prison in Quito to schools to orphanages to nursing homes and on the street corner. And these kids were amazing. We shared the good news with 5,000 people in those days that we were there. We stayed at this little dorm. It was part of this mission agency as their guest house. And they fed us and they housed us. And we would meet there. And we'd meet in the mornings after breakfast for time in the Word and prayer. We'd meet at, the, at nighttime to kind of debrief. And at the end of our three-week stay, the director of that housing situation there said, I'd like to meet with you and debrief about our time together. Great. Love to do that. So I sit down in his office, and he says, well, give me some feedback. How did it go? I said, well, you know, there's a few communication things in the beginning. We ironed that out right away, and it was great. It was great. No problems. Then I realized the agenda. He says, well, l- let me give you some feedback. And he went on to talk about one specific thing, the kids dancing. Now, I didn't know the kids were dancing. I didn't know they were dancing. In fact, all I could think of was once in a while, there were some Christian songs on and the kids were kind of jumping around, but I I didn't know that was dancing. And I quickly found out that that was dancing and it's not good. It's not right for a follower of Christ to dance. And as he went on, my blood pressure went up. (laughs) And I found myself understanding anew Why Jesus had a lot of problems with these kinds of people. A lot of problems. Um, When you go into the New Testament, um, like in Matthew that we looked at, we we see how the religious people missed Christmas and and who they were. And we read this last week, but it's just good to go back and, and see it again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So the religious people are called in, specifically the leaders right here, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the people that that King Herod figured out they're going to know the stuff about them because they study the scriptures, and sure enough, they knew it. Chapter and verse. Well, they didn't quite have chapters and verses back then, but they knew right away. 
Hey, Micah prophesied about where the Messiah is to be born. It's in Bethlehem. Yet the amazing thing is, the knowledge of where Christ was to be born, the information that they had to have, because verse 3 tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled at this news that Herod had heard, and believe you me, had leaked out. These wise men didn't come in unnoticed. People had heard. There's news about perhaps a king being born. And there is no mention in the Bible of these religious leaders ever doing anything about the information they had. There isn't even a hint that their curiosity was piqued. And they sent out a little exploration team to go check it out. You read the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, and they're not to be found. They're not found in the stable back behind the inn. They're not found eight days later when Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus in to be circumcised. The sign of the promise, the covenant. Out of obedience to the law, offering their sacrifices to God. We don't see the religious leaders. Oh, granted, we meet Simeon, a devout man, full of the Holy Spirit, who's been told by the Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the promised Messiah. And then there's godly Anna, who's been living in the temple, fasting and praying. And she meets Joseph and Mary and prophesies over the child that this is the one who is going to bring deliverance and redemption to Jerusalem, to God's people. But save Simeon and Anna, there is no record that the religious people welcomed him, especially those leaders. They missed the first Christmas. Well, not only did they miss the first Christmas, they really missed Christ. I mean, so bad did they miss him that when Christ starts his ministry 30 years later and they're still on the scenes and those who have followed in their steps, that he, he comes into his public ministry and he comes forgiving sins. Remember the story in Mark chapter 2? The paralytic is lowered by his friends. They're hoping for a set of new legs for their buddy. And the next thing they hear Jesus say is, your sins are forgiven. I've always wondered, what were they thinking? Well, that's nice, Jesus, but we were hoping for legs today. (laughs) Well, we don't know what they were thinking, but the Bible tells us Jesus knew what the religious leaders were thinking. And he tells us what they were thinking. They were saying this, who do you think you are? You're an imposter. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. It gets worse in chapter 3 when Jesus casts out the demon. They say, we know why you can do that. Because you're demon-possessed. You've got the prince of the demons, Satan himself, in your heart. That's why you have power to do what you just did. Talk about missing Christ. The Son of God come in the flesh, the promised Messiah, and they meet him and they call him Satan. They're convinced he's a sinner, a lawbreaker. And when they have him on trial in Matthew 26, they ask him point blank the question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And when he answers straight up, yes, I am. They go crazy. Now remember what they've just heard. They've just heard that he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead up in Bethany, and there's a lot of people who corroborate that. They've just heard that. But when they hear him say, he is the Christ, the scriptures say the high priest is pulling out his hair and he's tearing his, his, his garments. 
is a sign of judgment and blasphemy, and they execute him Roman style. They crucify him on a cross. And here's the question. How could religious people who knew the Scriptures, who were waiting for the promised Messiah, how could they miss him? How could they not get it? How is it the same thing could happen to us today? Well, turn over to Matthew 23. And Jesus does a little expose on these religious pretenders, I call them. As you're turning there, page 700 in the Bible there in front of you, Matthew 23. Speaking of pretenders, did you hear the story about John Darwin this week? Guy from England shows up last weekend, walks into a police headquarters. He says, I, I, I hear I'm a missing person. Yeah, you're a missing person. You've been missing for five years. Five years ago, he went out kayaking and he never returned. The day later, his kayak came up all banged up and they never seen John since. Well, Maybe John has more than a case of amnesia because the police started investigating, found out that his wife moved down to Panama where John had been in Panama, living off of the uh, life insurance that they had collected. And there's some fishy things going on here and they've charged him with fraud. So here's a pretender who's pretending to be dead so he can live high on the hog off of his life insurance policy. The sons find out and they're shocked and they say, we don't want to have anything to do with their parents, pretenders. Now, we're going to meet a different kind of pretender. These pretenders that we meet, these religious leaders, are pretending to be alive spiritually. And we'll see what Jesus says about their pretense. Matthew 23, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Do your kids ever tell you that, mom or dad? They tie up heavy loads. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. He's talking about spiritual guilt trips. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries. That's those little leather containers that held the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they had big ones, Jesus says. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long so that everybody will say, man, these are really holy people. Look at how big those things are. Verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets in the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. Verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So here's Jesus on bad religion. Here's what Jesus points out as he exposes these religious pretenders. They didn't practice what they preached. And that's why six times in Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites. And you know what that word hypocrite was used to describe? An actor. An actor on a stage who's pretending to be someone they are not. They're hypocrites. They're duplicit. There's not integrity through and through in their life. What does he say? Their teaching did more harm than good. These are the religious teachers of the day. How did their teaching do more harm than good? Well, first of all, it was burdensome. You ever been around religious teaching that is always weighing you down in guilt? That's not the way of God. That's not the way of Christ. They laid burdens on the people. And then they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to help them with the burdens that they laid on them. And the burden that they laid on people had everything to do with the law and keeping the law and every little bit of the law. Not only that, what does the text say? They shut the door of heaven. They slammed it closed in their face because the way to heaven is not through good works. The way to heaven is by God's grace. It's what Steve was talking about this morning. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, your salvation, is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. Their teaching did more harm than good. Everything was done for the praise of others. They weren't living for the praise of God. They were living for the praise of men. They love the places of honor and titles. Call me rabbi. I love it when you call me rabbi. They majored on the minors. They were straining gnats and swallowing camels. What a picture. Well, they, they had this whole thing of tithing down. Man, were they good at tithing. They were so good at tithing, they were tithing the spice rack in their kitchen. Meanwhile, they completely forgot about the big things like justice like mercy, like faithfulness. And finally, they focused on the externals, proving their religion was indeed dead. What a picture. White wash tombs. A bowl that's clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's dirty. You know, it reminds me of my dishwasher sometimes. You ever have these bowls come out of your dishwasher where you realize, you know, we had oatmeal again yesterday morning and somebody forgot to rinse the bowl out. And now we've got calcified, petrified oatmeal on the inside of what looks on the outside like a clean, shiny bowl until you pull it out and you go, oh, man, got to put that one back in the sink. On the outside, it all looks good. 
like a beautiful whitewashed tomb. But the inside, it's dead. It's dead. It's dead. Friends, the truth is the people who had the facts, who were looking for Jesus, were the religious people who missed him. I mean, we would say, okay, who do you think, if we hadn't read the story, who do you think's going to get it? We're going to say, well, it's, it's the guys in church. It's the guys that are in the Word. They're going to get it. And they didn't. And so you wind this teaching forward and say, what are the implications? Well, the implications this morning is we can be sitting here. We could be singing here. We could be praying here. We could be giving here. We could be teaching here. We could have a really strict moral code of ethics that we live by. And it could be a shell. It could be a ruse. If it's not from the heart, we are just as vulnerable of missing Christmas, of missing Christ. And I I think one of the damning things that goes on here is when we dupe ourselves into thinking we're on our way with God, that he's pleased with us because of these external things that we're keeping here, meanwhile our heart is dead like that tomb, that we start thinking in, in a subtle way, maybe we haven't even made the conclusion in our minds, but we start thinking, I am a gift to you, God. And in that very thought, we preclude ourselves from ever receiving the gift from God. We don't think we need it. They didn't think they needed it. I was reading a a pastor's musings on these very verses, and here's some of the warnings for us today. First of all, followers of Christ are vulnerable to hypocrisy. Well, it's, it's easy for us. It's easy for us even to have walked through the door of grace and realize it has nothing to do with our good works and now all of a sudden be pursuing our relationship with Christ through good works. And so we, we feel guilty about things that we didn't do, somehow thinking that when we do this, God loves us more. And we're starting to miss it. Knowing Scripture comes easier than living it. Well, we know that. That's why James says, don't merely hear the word and listen to it and so deceive yourselves. You've got to do it. Do what it says. Public performance is easier than private devotion. That's why it's so important to be real with each other in our home groups and community, to be authentic. Because it's easy. It's easy to play the part. I think our students today call it posing, a poser who's posing something that they're not. This whole matter of tradition. Tradition becomes more attractive, more important than truth. Now, what you need to know about these Pharisees who are all over the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, they got the law down to 613 direct commands. And they were all over those commands. You couldn't break any of those commands. And so what they did to keep you from breaking a command is they put a whole hedge of little commands around the big command. So when you have the command that you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, then there was 30 different things that you had to do that would keep you from breaking that commandment. 
And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to Jesus' day, you find out what's more important for these people. Their interpretation. Jesus calls it the traditions. And he keeps using this phrase in the New Testament. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. The heard it says had everything to do with the Talmud, with what became the Talmud. These oral traditions that these religious leaders were passing on and saying, this is what it means to follow God. That's what I ran up against in Quito. So I said to the guy in Quito, I said, no, wait a minute. There, there's, there's this great line in the Bible that says, David danced with all of his might before the Lord. I thought I had him right now in a full Nelson, and I was going to pin him. <laughs> what are you going to do with that, buddy? And he said, well, that was David. I said, exactly. And that was David, a man after God's own heart. Well, what are you going to do? He says, well, that's different. That was David. What happened? What happened? Tradition supersedes God's word, truth. And we do it today. We do it today. We just have different things. Here's another warning. Separation can lead to isolation, or put another way, religious pretenders no longer pursue Christ's mission. What was the big bone of contention that the, I mean, they had a lot of bone, bones of contention with Jesus, but what was the biggie? It was this. What are you doing as a religious man hanging out with sinners? What are you hanging out with tax collectors? They're thieves. They're no good. They're the scum of the earth. And what in the world are you doing hanging out with sinners like prostitutes? They, they just couldn't understand. You know, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They prided themselves that their life was separate, that it was holy, that they were keeping the whole law of God. And so they wouldn't want to be around anything or anyone that would pollute them. So the very ones that were called by God to be a light to the Gentiles, they turn it off. And that's what this religious pretension will do. It'll cut us off from the mission of Christ. Finally, misconceptions about Jesus will cause us to miss him too. Here's what they were looking for. They were looking for a king who would come and crush the enemy. Well, you think about crushing the enemy. Wasn't that God's promise to Eve back in Genesis 3.15? One of your descendants is going to crush the enemy. But the enemy in Genesis 3.15 was not Rome. But I can tell you this, most of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, most of the people longing for this that Simeon called the consolation of Israel, they were looking for this king who would come and crush Rome because for eight centuries going back to 721 B.C. when the Assyrians sacked the ten northern kingdoms, God's people had gone in a sense backwards, back into captivity, back into being ruled by another like they were in Egypt many, many years before. And for 800 years, they've gone from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks and now to the Romans. And they were sick of it and they wanted freedom where the people of promise, where God's chosen people, we're supposed to live in the promised land and we want a savior who will deliver us from Rome because their pressing need defined who their Savior should be. And they missed him. Oh man, we have pressing needs right here in this room. Some of us are so into debt, 
We don't have a clue how we're going to get out of it. It's a huge need. Some of us are really afraid of getting called into the office like Steve was talking about. We're, we just feel like we're on the bubble. Some of our pressing needs have nothing to do with finances. It's our health. Maybe it's physically. Maybe it's emotionally. Maybe it's with relationships, broken relationships, a marriage that's just, it's just on the bubble and who knows what's going to happen. It's with your kids, with your parents. A pressing need that can cause us then to say, this is what I need in a Savior. And I think Lewis is so helpful when he helps us understand that we'll never get the second place things that we need by making them first. We'll only get the second place things that we're struggling with right now when we put God and his son Christ in first place. It's not that Jesus can't meet us in all of those crushing issues in life, but that's not why he came. He came to die for you and me. He came to offer us life today. He came to give us forgiveness through his death on the cross. He came to erase all the guilt and weight that we've had in our life and to free us from that and to live with him forever. You know what the great thing is about Jesus? Is that he dealt with those religious people so different than I dealt with that guy in Keto. I didn't tell you how the, how the story ended. So I'll tell you how the story ended, and I'm not proud of it. I slammed the door really hard. I was so mad. And in slamming the door, I was saying, I don't want to have anything more to do with your self-righteous piety. You know what? Jesus doesn't do that. He didn't do that. When those religious leaders walked him out of Jerusalem and led him to Golgotha's hill where they would watch the Roman centurions drive the nails through his hands, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's why We've got a a king like no other kings. We've got a savior like no other savior. The door of heaven is wide open because of God's grace offered to us in his son. And that's why we're not surprised when we meet Jairus, the the ruler of the synagogue, who meets Jesus because his daughter is sick and then his daughter's dead and then Jesus raises her from the dead and he's now following Christ. And there's another religious leader named Nicodemus who's a Pharisee. And he meets Christ and he hears about new life in the spirit. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin, who takes his body down off the cross and buries him in his tomb. And then there's Saul, who becomes Paul. The Pharisee of Pharisees, the guy who meticulously kept it all. And Paul says, when I look back at my spiritual pedigree, when I look back at my external pursuit of good works and earning my way to God's favor. I just see that's all rubbish and garbage. We go, what a Jesus. He doesn't slam the door in our face. You know what? There isn't a one of us that at some point say we're pretending. 
I mean, it's possible to do that as a Christ follower, and it's possible to do that for sure without knowing Christ. And what I say to you is Jesus says there's room for you this Christmas. My grace will cover all of that. Stop the charade. Let me give you life in your very heart. And from that, may you experience life like you've never experienced before. Let's pray. Lord, that's just it. Heavy burdens shut the door of heaven. Works don't work to bring us to you. But your son's good work on the cross is the door that opens heaven's gates. And I pray that you'd grant faith to someone here who, without even knowing it, realizes now I've been a pretender. It's not from the heart. There's a gap here. And I pray that you give them a new heart and new life and new joy and peace this Christmas. And Lord, for those of us who just went through another week, and we would say to you, we know we're sinners, but we can't think back of one thing that we confessed to you this week. We go, oh, we're so vulnerable to the same stuff. Have mercy on us. Lord, help us not to strain at gnats and swallow camels. Help us to to clearly understand your word and that that would always be reworking our traditions and our frameworks. And Lord Jesus, we pray this Christmas that we would celebrate your grace. That we'd never think we're the gift to you, but we'd always remember your son is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Prepare hearts, Lord, to receive him still. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.